Hello, and welcome to another episode of Father and Joe. I'm Joe Rocky here with Father Boniface Six. And Father, again, going through the United States Catechism for Adults, um, which basically is the bishops wrote a book articulating essentially everything that our faith is about, um, starting with, obviously, Jesus is the core of all of it, and then applying it to all events that kind of could happen in our day-to-day lives. We just mentioned in the last episode stuff like the death penalty, but essentially every element of our lives that that could be applicable somewhere in this 24-hour audiobook is covered in, in, in some capacity and, and typically with some pretty good detail. So it brought up a couple of questions going through things and some things – um, were just assumptions that I had made wrong, you know, through childhood and adolescence, as as I mentioned before. Um, but this one is just, I, I guess, a core concept knowledge thing that I don't think I'm grasping. So when they discuss Jesus, they call him king, priest, and prophet, and. I understand the king part. That's pretty easy, sitting at the right hand of God in heaven. I understand the priest part. That also seems pretty straightforward. The part that I don't understand is how can Jesus be a prophet if he's fulfilling everything? Because to me, a prophet was always someone who was going to tell you what was going to come but as we discuss um, Jesus, particularly um, or at Easter, that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything. I mean, the, the Easter vigil is starts with prophecy after prophecy after prophecy going through the Old Testament prophets in, in the readings there. And this is just a flat out thing that I am missing something. Um, so I, I wanted to discuss that because it's not something that ever really comes up Jesus as a prophet and I wanted to just spend a, a couple minutes here in today's episode to do it because it's something that's a thought-provoking question to me and I figure it probably is to someone else great yeah um, yeah part of the thing is that that's not uh, that's one dimension of prophecy but that doesn't actually define prophecy the, the word prophet in Hebrew means to speak out. And it's really speaking divine truth. And so part of divine truth is a vision to the future. And that's one thing that strongly contrasts it with human truth that doesn't have that division, that vision into the future. And so um, prophecy as predicting the future has become a kind of common association. But it is uh, certainly broader than that. Uh, speaking definitively of God's love uh, in a way that embodies God's love. You know, Jeremiah spoke about, uh, I mean, if you think about what the prophets say, right, they they also uh, tell Israel to return to the Lord, to repent, to, uh, to do what is right, to care for the widow. This is what I desire, says the Lord. So they're speaking on behalf of the Lord to Israel. That's what prophecy is. It's the one who speaks God's word to his people. And um, again, that can include some dimension of the future when the prophet says, if you don't repent, these bad things will happen. And then the bad things happen. And we say, well, the prophet knew the future. Well, the prophet also told people how to change the present to avoid the future. But um, 
And, and so uh, in all of those ways, of course, Jesus speaks on behalf of God more than any other prophet because he is God. Everything he expresses is what God expresses. And so he is the prophet par excellence. He is the one who is so united with the heart of God that he is himself God and speaks uh, the truth of God to us. In terms of uh, fulfillment or not, he does certainly fulfill the prophets of old. And at the same time, he has not fulfilled the second coming. And he has not fulfilled any of the things that he has uh, predicted will come at the end of time. Um, He also famously predicted the fall of Jerusalem, for example. And it's precisely the disbelief that Jesus could tell the future that has led some scripture scholars to date the writing of Luke's gospel to be after the fall of Jerusalem because he predicts the fall of Jerusalem and they could have only rewritten that back into his mouth after the fall of Jerusalem. It's a little bit crazy. But uh, the point being, Jesus certainly did predict a number of things. He said what would happen if certain things didn't take place. And he predicted also what would happen at the end of time, uh, which has not happened yet. And so we see him in a prophetic stance even according to that narrow definition of telling the future. But we certainly see him in the prophetic stance of being the one who speaks out on behalf of God, who speaks the word of God to, to his people. Yeah, and so so their first mistake is, is looking at the word prophet wrong. And I guess part of the, um, the, the part of speaking out the truth of the word of God, I, I just took that as part of the priest, but certainly that would be overlap. You know, obviously Jesus introduces the sacraments and that's obviously a very important part of being a priest is, is, is the sacraments, um, particularly the forgiveness of sins and the Eucharist can't really be much more important than, than those two. So, all right. So, so that, that was certainly one, one of my questions has about why don't we discuss that more? And it's, it's partially just because that the uh, the mindset I had of what a prophet is was just incorrect. So along those lines, you know, Jesus was one of us. You know, he he walked around. He had DNA just like a person. He had, as a child, the same potential to go in any wrong direction that we all have as individuals. And obviously, we look at the Holy Family as examples of how to avoid problems that that he went through how to not put himself in you know situations and the world certainly threw challenges at them he had to flee for his life when he was a baby and obviously there's there's a lot of stress there but as we see uh, jesus growing up as he was dealt with the stress and yes i understand that he also is is divine as well but he never subcame if, if that is the correct word i apologize if it's not but he never subcame to um addiction you know obviously alcohol existed then he talks about wine all the time in the bible you know the, the, there was other addictive substances that the ancient egyptians had um certainly bef- before the time period that, that christ was well and all of that would have existed in the society around him um Yet Jesus never, as far as the Bible articulates, never partook, if that makes sense. He never took himself to the extreme of where he became um, an alcoholic, as we would look at it today, or, or addicted to anything. And that's one of the other things that, 
the catechism kind of teaches against is not to become um, the way I think they, they described it was a slave to a substance, not to become addicted. And obviously, you know the teachings of, of Christ as a moral teacher better than I ever could. So are there any specific sightings um, or ways that the, the church teaches to avoid the addictions, to, to, to why we shouldn't, um, in a capacity greater than just saying it takes away from our own free will because now we're addicted to something? I know that's a little bit of a turn, but I'm just trying to ask all of my questions about the catechism that I've written down as going through it. <laughs> um, well, and it's great that you're going through it, and it's great that you're gathering up questions. And as I've often uh, praised you in the past, I uh, praise you again for taking the time and, and doing that. It's such a good example. I, I wish all of our listeners would do the same. And uh Write your read through the catechism and write down your questions and send them to Joe and we'll talk about them. <laughs> so it's uh, it's really a wonderful wonderful practice that you're doing that, um, and and bringing your questions to the catechism also is a great practice. Uh, uh, as you as you demonstrated in our discussion about the death penalty, for example, uh, you know, and then also in a way that you're doing about addictions, you know, uh, what does the catechism have to say about Dot, dot, dot. Because uh, as as we saw in the death penalty discussion that we had in the last podcast, you came to a conclusion through a particular thought process, which um, it, it isn't fundamentally wrong, but but is flawed in certain ways or, or limited. Um, it's not as full as it needs to be. And so when you see how the catechism approaches it, you get a fuller sense, you get a different mindset, a different uh, methodology for discerning what is right and wrong or discerning approaches to things. And so it's really valuable to try and take on the mind of the catechism because it'll lead us to a consistency. That's one of the amazing things that uh, our Catholic church teaching does is that there is a consistency in, in approach that uh, doesn't lead us down certain paths that are down certain dead ends. So uh, the more that we can take on the mentality, the the mindset of the catechism, the better off that we are. And uh, in terms of of addiction, I can't say that I've read the catechism's treatment of addiction in in a general sense. Um, e- even the word addiction, I mean, addiction is itself not so much an ancient category as a modern psychological category. I don't even know that I could precisely define addiction. I mean, you might say in terms of being dependent on a substance, I mean, we are dependent on food and water, for example. One could say we're addicted to water. <laughs> uh, but one could also, who needs medication for, you know, maybe for high blood pressure or for thyroid or uh, or even different psychotropic drugs, uh, Zoloft or, uh, you know, some some other anxiety or depression medication or, or lithium for um, you know, manic depressive bipolar disorder or something like that, you know, uh, someone needs to take that for the rest of their life. That's not necessarily a problem. Uh, and so, uh, likewise, one can easily become addicted to caffeine as I am. Uh, now I've, I've broken that addiction multiple times and, you know, you get a nasty headache for 24 hours and then you're through it and it's fine. Um, but I'm not too worried about being addicted to something that doesn't impair my functioning. And uh, well, ultimately, that I can 
take or leave, although with a, a little withdrawal perhaps. So I guess the, the point is, it's not so much about addiction as such as the particular substances that one might become uh, be using. Excessive use of alcohol is problematic because of the impairment of reason. Now, even that is a relative good because uh, we accept the impairment of reason to a certain degree with palliative medication. When someone is in severe pain, you can apply painkillers not for the sake of reducing reason and not, um, you know, but really for the sake of a greater good, which is making pain manageable so that the person can survive and not really become suicidal because the pain is so extreme. Uh, but a consequence, a, a side effect of that can be some impairment of reason. And the catechism balances those two goods and says, well, as much as possible, you want to maintain reason so that someone can enter into death, even uh, surrender their life with greater intentionality and awareness that this is such a critical moment that we really entrust ourselves into the hands of our loving father in a conscious and intentional way. So we don't want to impair reason even at that last late stage in our life. It's not even because we have important things to do that we could mess up or we're in danger of drinking and driving. You know, it's, uh, it's really a uh, reason is itself uh, an incredible good that God has entrusted to man alone uh, among the, the material creatures, among the animals. And so uh, we try to maintain these goods and free will is also uh, a great good that God has entrusted to man alone. And so uh, getting ourselves into a position, especially that we're addicted to substances that are going to damage our body or impair our, our ultimate thriving, uh, limiting our, our uh, free will as well, that, uh, you know, those are, there's a hierarchy of goods that we want to maintain. Uh, and so, again, there's a, there are secondary reasons that we might accept the impairment of reason to a certain degree. There are secondary reasons that we might accept uh, substances that we're dependent on. Um, but as much as possible, we want to maintain those those great goods of reason and free will, which are a part of being made in the image and likeness of God. And as you go through that, and just kind of think it through the 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 the, the relation. They use the word reason a lot in the catechism. Um, you know, they they use it um, particularly when they're talking about the sins. Um, that that you have to have the reason and understanding that you're doing something wrong. You know, I think the example that they gave in there was, you know, an an infant that's learning how to to walk and to crawl. If he hits someone in the face, that's not the same as an adult hitting someone in the face. You know, they're very different. Um, so so the action of hitting someone in its face, even you know, you think of that as well, that would always be wrong. Well, it, it, the action itself is not inherently wrong. It's the ability to use reason there within. And I think that you just gave a really good example there of how sometimes choosing to do something that would lessen your reason um, is acceptable, and, and sometimes is not. And it really gets down to the why you're doing something. And it, it made me think of something, and, and this is just I, maybe it's something that I have been thinking about. I could be completely wrong on that. As we start to think about whys in, you know, especially in the morals 
it becomes very obvious how little we can grasp. Um, you know, like, like, like I can understand the whys in mechanical things and technology things. You know, I understand why we frame a house the way we do, because we have to beat gravity and this is how we do it. I understand, you know, why someone would want to have a fire inside their house, even though their whole house could burn down because you want to stay warm. I get whys like that. But as we look into the bigger questions, like why do we know God is good? Um, I, aside from the obvious answers, well, we exist. And if God wasn't good, he wouldn't even deal with us. Cause we have to be annoying. Um, you know, where else would, would the answer be? So it really shows how limited our perspective is when we think about things like why, and, and not to get into a physics rabbit hole, but there are so many more dimensions than our mind can comprehend that they essentially can prove with math. Like they've been able to prove like eight dimensions or something like that. And our mind can barely handle four. Um, I might have misunderstood the physics thing I was watching, but by our, our senses, we have limitations. Um, you know, you think of like the vision spectrum that we're able to, uh, to see. We can see a very limited amount of colors, but we know ultraviolet rays exist. We know gamma rays. So not to get too far off the topic here, but what I'm trying to say is I don't grasp how much we don't understand when we talk about the the, the intention of God and, and why we think we can um, without reliance upon the, the church. I, I guess that's just a fundamental question I have and it's perplexing. And like I said, I listened to the entire catechism, which covered a lot of moral things, but to, to think that I'd be able to come up with this by myself. And I think that there's a lot of people who have that inclination that they'd be able to do this. Um, it, it, it's perplexing now having yes. gone, through, gone through it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You, you make a, a great point. It is, uh, it is amazing. I mean, it, and, and as you read the catechism and you see the way that things fit together, you see the coherent application of principles across so many areas. You see the, the rich insights and nuances that are applied to these uh, things that we deal with every day. I mean, it is amazing uh, and, and really beautiful, beautiful in the true sense of the word. And uh, yeah, so philosophers have worked on this. I mean, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics is uh, is a classic. That's you know, whatever back uh, from uh, over two thousand years ago. And uh, and and Saint Thomas Aquinas took these things up, but then completed them with with Christian principles. And then there have been different nuances and applications to different situations. And it is a really rich teaching. And your point of uh, what it would take to come up with this. I mean, no individual came up with all of this in the sense that uh, it's been a, a work of of the church applying what Christ gave us uh, and then also what reason gives us and then applying that to the, the details of daily life. And uh, one of the insights or observations of St. Thomas Aquinas was that, uh, you know, faith gives us so much. That is to say, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. If we have faith that God is real, that he has revealed his will to the church, 
and that the church through the the work of theologians and the magisterium validated by the magisterium protected by the holy spirit uh who guarantees the the teaching office of the church that we don't have to figure it all out we can accept it in faith we can accept it uh it's actually accessible to reason so if we had a sufficient reason we could also reason through it but we don't need to have uh, enough reason and saint thomas said what took philosophers a lifetime to uh to just develop the a little old lady with her rosary can get in a few moments you know and that's what faith really skips a lot of work for us if we can accept in the supernatural virtue of faith that god has revealed himself to us in this way that makes me also think of jordan peterson who i i saw in person and he spent an hour telling us that the bible is true and uh the the guy sitting next to me who has a doctorate in theology goes i think this is what saint thomas meant that uh, what takes philosophers a lot of effort, a little old lady gets with just the act of faith. And so we really do get a, a great treasure. But then to your point also, the hubris that we could reinvent it and that we would actually stand against this teaching and think that I have a better answer or a more accurate solution to this problem is uh, it's just kind of crazy. It's like, I don't hold a candle to St. Thomas, let alone St. Thomas in the midst of the tradition uh, that that has continued to unfold and nuance and clarify and build together in a totally coherent and radiant explanation how we live out the basic commandment, which is to love everyone as Christ loves us. That's the one commandment that ties it all together. But to actually tease that out into the context of daily life takes a lot of work. And uh, we don't have to do all of that work. We just need to learn it and and apply it. Yeah, at the end of the day, you don't need to reimagine something that's proven to work. Just do it. Um, so I guess that's that's kind of my, my my thought process there. Well, right, nonetheless, we thank everyone for listening with us and being with us here today. We will be with you all again next week.